I'm sure most people could agree that there's one thing that everyone finds terrifying. Captivity. Being held against your will with no sure way of getting out. What happens when your captivity is not over just a span of days or even just a year, but a whole decade? For three young girls and women, they spent a decade being raped, beaten, and tortured. This is part one of the story of the Cleveland Three. So before we get started, make sure whatever podcast platform you're listening on, make sure to follow. If you follow, you'll get updates and notifications of new episodes. So yeah, go on, do it. Why not? Why not do it? We're fun. We're eerie. We're good Christian woman. No, we're not. I'm going to the church on Sunday. My dogs, I feel so bad for my dogs sometimes because I am a weird man. I am such a strange man. I like dance in like the most awkward ways in front of them. And I'm, and Balto looks at me like I'm a, a psycho. <laughs> he like literally looks at me like I'm like some devil creature from hell when I do it. <laughs> but anyway, let's just jump right in. I am going to say that this episode does have a lot of talk about rape and torture. So keep that in mind. I will try to give a heads up before I start talking about that stuff, just in case you want to skip ahead a little bit. I know for some people that can be triggering and I just want to be respectful of you. This whole episode is going to center a lot around that kind of stuff. So keep that in mind as you're listening. It's not an easy topic. So I do also want to state that this episode is going to be a multi-parter. There was just so much to cover, so I wanted to make sure to give the full picture of the story. So you will be getting maybe three parts to this. I'm not sure yet. We will touch on that after the next part of this series, but we'll see. So to really dig into this case, we should really talk about Ariel Castro. Ariel Castro was born in Dewey which is a village in Puerto Rico. He was born on July 10th of 1960. He was the third child of Pedro Castro, who owned the most land in that area. And his wife was Lillian Rodriguez. In 1962, Lillian discovered that her husband, Pedro Castro, was married to a second woman with whom he had four other children. And he ended up abandoning Lillian to live with his second family. Shortly after, Lillian moved so that she could go to work in Pennsylvania and left her four children in Puerto Rico, which is kind of shitty. That sucks. Poor kids. But the kids were cared for by their maternal grandmother, Celia Carabello. It was while this was all happening that Ariel, who was five at the time, was apparently sexually abused 
by an, a nine-year-old boy named Pucho. Ariel never reported this, and he developed a obsession with sex and a compulsion to masturbate from a young age. Ooh. That's unfortunate. Doesn't excuse what he does later, but still very unfortunate. So Ariel's mom actually returned in 1966, and according to Ariel, she was abusive and would insult him and hit him almost every day, whether it was with, like, a bell, a stick, or her hand. Ariel's family immigrated to the U.S. and settled in Cleveland later on in 1970. And Ariel's uncle came to visit one day and gave Ariel a guitar because his uncle apparently owned a record shop. And Ariel became a professional bass player and he combined that with like other second jobs. So in 1980, Ariel had his first girlfriend. So in 1980, Ariel started dating a 17 year old Puerto Rican neighbor named Nelda Figuiola. And he was inevitably having to take her in because her family was like, oh no, she lost her virginity to you? No, we can't have her. So they just gave her to him, essentially. So when Nilda gave birth to their first child in 1981, Ariel's behavior kind of changed and he became pretty controlling and abusive. He would force Nilda to just stay at home all the time and started picking where she could go and even controlling what type of TV she could watch. And whenever she kind of strayed from his, you know, guidance and instruction, he started to beat her when she would stray. And over time, it just kept kept getting worse and worse. He broke bones in her body and only let her go to the hospital with those broken bones if she, like, swore that she wasn't going to tell anyone that it was him. So in 1989, Ariel, in the presence of his brother, and ended up being arrested. But he was released after that because she didn't press charges on him. In 1992, they moved to 2207 Seymour Drive with their four children. And after arriving, Castro padlocked every single door in the house and started working in the basement. We installed a heavy trap door and added curtains and layers of brick to soundproof it. So after he finished this creepy basement <laughs> he started locking his family down there when he went to go do gigs which could last up to four days and it's crazy super crazy so eventually nilda became pregnant again in 1993 so this fifth time 
Ariel was like, okay, no, I don't want to have any more kids. So he was like, I'm just going to punch her and kick her in the belly and try and get rid of this kid. Then in October of 1993, he threw her down a flight of stairs and she broke her skull. So a few weeks later, she began to have seizures and was diagnosed with a blood clot in her brain that ended up hardening and becoming a tumor. On December 26, Ariel came home drunk and attacked her again. His 12-year-old son, Ariel Jr., ran out to get help, and Castro ran after him. Nilda ended up calling the police when he ran out to grab his son and locked the door. So the officers came and saw Ariel, you know, pounding on their front door and arrested him. Ariel inevitably went to jail. And he was released on a $25,000 bail. In February of 1984, there was a court hearing and Nilda was called to testify before a grand jury. And right before she went in the building, Ariel found her and threatened to kill her and the children if she said anything. So this guy was a fucking shitty dad. He was a shitty husband and partner. Like, just a garbage person. She was terrified. She was like, okay, I can't do this. I'm, I'm, he's going to kill me. What else can I do? So she went in and she said nothing ever happened. And then the charges were dropped. Nilda then moved to her mom's home with the children and... Ariel cut almost all contact with them. He was like, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to just be by myself for now. And I'm going to spend my time making my house like a freaking unescapable dungeon. So he went to his neighbor's house and threatened him with a shovel and was like, I'm going to take these materials. Thanks. And then Ariel installed multiple security alarms and placed mirrors all over the house until he was sure that nothing could happen in the house without him seeing it. In 1995, Nilda went in for brain surgery. And this was after she had already started dating a security guard named Fernando Colon. Castro or Ariel learned of their relationship. Sorry, my dogs are trying to eat my cat. So Ariel learned of the relationship between his ex and this man a year after when one of his daughters called him from Fernando's, her new spouse's home. And Ariel became furious. He called Fernando, claiming that Nilda was his wife and that he had stolen her from him. But Fernando reminded Castro that he had never married Nilda. Later, Castro saw Fernando taking his children to school and attempted to run him over with his car, but Fernando was able to dodge him. Fernando ended up filing charges, but they were dropped due to lack of evidence. In 1997, Nilda was given full custody of the children and Ariel was deprived of visitation rights. So Nilda filed charges in 2005 
for the severe injuries that Ariel gave to her and for frequently abducting their daughters. The court ended up granting Nilda a temporary restraining order against Castro, but it was dismissed a few months later. In 2012, Nilda ended up dying due to complications from the brain tumor that she received from the blood clot that came from the injuries that Ariel gave to her. So Ariel essentially killed this woman because of the injuries that he gave her. After his family left, Ariel became interested in some interesting stuff. And by interesting, I mean fucking disgusting stuff. He was like, oh yeah, I actually really like BDSM. And started developing this fantasy, holding a teenage girl in his home as a sex slave. Yikes. On August 23rd, 2002, this became a reality. So there was this girl named Michelle Knight. Michelle was 21 years old at the time. And we're going to go through each victim too and talk about a little bit about them prior to the kidnappings, just because I don't want the kidnappings and their experiences to be the only thing that describes them. I just feel like that's not right. So I want to give a brief warning that we will talk about sexual violence and that will come very shortly. But let's talk about Michelle Knight. So she was the first of the three victims to be kidnapped by Ariel Castro. And Michelle Knight had a pretty horrible childhood. Her family was not wealthy whatsoever. Um, at one point, they even lived in a car. Her childhood was full of abuse in the sexual manner and the physical manner as well. She was beaten and sexually abused. Her family was so poor that at one point they lived in their car. And when they did finally get a house, there was a, it was a big house. The house didn't even have a couch or TV or even an oven. Michelle said later on that she sometimes had to cook meals on a space heater. And sometimes it would take up to four hours. Michelle was the sister that took care of everybody and was really loving. And one weird part that came up was a interview of Michelle from prior to her kidnapping of her talking to the news station because she had actually helped deliver one of her siblings. At one point when she was 14, she was just like, okay, I'm so sick of the abuse. I want to get out of here. She was like, I feel like I would be just safer in the streets than I would be here. So she ended up running away. I couldn't find how long she lived on the streets, but she lived on the streets for a little bit. At just 14, she slept under a park bench at times and then ended up living in a like a garbage can because she was a short girl. So she lived in the garbage can and stole a blanket from someone's porch and slept near a bridge. And she said that the vibrations from the bridge helped her sleep. While homeless, she also went to a Baptist church and she said that the music is what drew her there. Like the beautiful music that she heard when walking by one day. The Baptist church that she went to had a food service too every day at 2 p.m. So Michelle would go to those every single day at 2. And one day, one of her family members saw her there and called her dad and let her dad know. So her dad came and picked her up. 
and brought her home. So after she went home, life went kind of back to normal. She had to deal with abuse still, but she also had to go to high school. So in high school, she was horribly bullied, she said. Like, she was the outcast. Like, no one liked her. She sat at the back of the class and didn't really talk to people because they were mean to her. Well, eventually, she met a boy. And her and this boy started dating and ended up having sex. Not too long after, Michelle ended up having a child named Joey. And she raised him and did the best she could with him. One day when she went to a job interview, her mom was watching her son. And her mom's boyfriend, who was drunk at the time, fractured Joey's knee. Social services ended up being called when she brought him to the doctor. And Joey was taken away from her. So Michelle wanted to get Joey back, of course. So on August 23rd, 2002, she got lost on her way to case management meeting, which was supposed to help her get Joey back, and stopped at one of the stores to ask for directions. She tried to call them on a payphone, and she was like, I don't think I'm going to make it. So she started asking around, and she went into a store and asked a woman who was there, and the woman was like, oh, sorry, I don't know this area very well, so I apologize, I can't help you. And then she asked the cashier. And the cashier was ringing up another customer. She looked at the address and was like, I think it's right up there on the corner. She's like, I'm not 100%, but I think that's where it is. So Michelle was about to leave again. And a man came over and offered to help. He was like, oh, yeah, I know where that is. She recognized this guy as one of her friend's fathers. So he was like, yeah, I'll, I can help you. I can take you there. And she was like, oh, yeah, okay, awesome, cool, because she knew him. So he finished ringing up his stuff with the cashier and then left with her. Michelle described him as scruffy, and his hair was thick wavy, combed, and fluffed out a little bit. He had olive-colored skin, and she said his hands were kind of rusty, like they hadn't been lotioned in months, like they were really rough, and the skin was peeling. She said he looked like he was about 40 years old, and he had a pot belly that spilled over the top of his black jeans. At the time, he was wearing a checkered long-sleeve flannel shirt, with some grease stains on it. So not someone I would catch a ride with, even if my friends knew them. But, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And I can't really blame her. She was so desperate to get her son back. So when they left, he was like, this man offered to give her a ride. And she was like, yeah, of course, that would be awesome. And she was like, oh, yeah, can we call Emily since his daughter is her friend, and let her know that I'm going to be taking a ride from you. And he was like, yeah, Emily's actually in school right now, and I don't want to bother her. And when he said this, he leaned toward her, and she said that he smelled kind of like transmission fluid. And she was like, okay, well, I guess it's fine. Well, you can just give me a ride. <laughs> so he was like, yeah, I need to stop by the house, and I have puppies there if you want to see them. So she was like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. And thinking of her son, 
being like, oh, maybe I could get him a puppy for when he does come home or something, you know? And when she got in the car, he grabbed her arm almost immediately in a rough kind of way, like really rough. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. I was holding your arm too tight, wasn't I? And she laughed nervously, of course, and was like, okay. It seemed a little off, but he, once he apologized, she was like, okay, that's fine, whatever. And she trusted him because this was her friend's dad. Why wouldn't she, you know? Like, you wouldn't think that some friend's dad would, you know, want to harm you in any way. <laughs> All right, Eerie Tribe, I'm so excited to talk about today's sponsor, Audible. Audible is, <laughs> I can honestly say that I use Audible on a daily level. I read a lot, but sometimes I don't have time to just read or maybe I'm, you know, hitting the hay and I need to put the book down and just listen for a little bit. New members can actually try Audible for free for 30 days using our link. As an Audible member, you can choose one title per month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. You can find some $50 audiobooks and get them super cheap by just having this Audible membership. There's so many Audible exclusives as well that you can only listen to on Audible. You'll discover exclusive Audible originals from top celebrities, renowned experts, and exciting new voices in audio, which I might be one of those soon. But for real, anything you're interested in, you can find it on Audible. There's so much on Audible that you can check out. If you visit audibletrial.com slash theeriepod, you can get one free month and one free book that you get to keep forever. So check it out, guys. Strongly recommend it. This man was Ariel Castro, unfortunately for her. So instead of going to the family court, he took her to his house on the pretense of first picking up his daughter and showing Michelle some puppies. But his daughter didn't live with him and there were no puppies. When they got to the house, Ariel was like, we're here and proceeded to get out and close the gate that they just drove into and locked it. and. Michelle was like, why are you parking and locking the gate? I thought we were just stopping for a minute. <laughs> and he was like, oh, yeah, this is a, a bad neighborhood. So I just don't want my truck to get stolen, you know? Like, <laughs> she was thinking at this time, why would anyone want to steal your piece of shit truck? She was like, okay, whatever. And then they went towards the backyard and she saw the, a little chow chow that was chained up out back. She was like, oh, that's the dog. Okay, cool. He was like, want to come in for a minute? And she was like, uh, why? <laughs> like, why do I want to come in? He's like, oh, well, then you can pick out your own puppy. And he was like, don't worry. My daughter's here. You're fine. She was like, okay. Because she was like, this would be kind of cool if I could get a puppy. And that way my son could have a puppy for when I get him back. You know? Very sad and ma manipulative situation and she was obviously just so trusting when she was about to go inside she saw said she saw a neighbor and she knew this guy his she said his kids were kind of bratty <laughs> and she waved to him and she was like okay that put puts me at ease because that means he has neighbors that know him and yeah 
That's fine. It'll be fine. She said that Ariel's yard was disgusting and his truck was disgusting. And when she walked in, there were sheets of newspaper all over the kitchen and living room. And there's just dirty dishes everywhere. Beer bottles were everywhere. The house itself smelled like piss beer and rotten black beans, which I don't know what that smells like, but sounds like it smells bad. <laughs> and she was like, I wonder if Emily feels as grossed out living here. <laughs> Michelle was pretty grossed out. And he was like, come on in. Like I said, you know, I'm a bachelor. I don't get a chance to clean up much. Michelle's just like grossed out and was like, okay, let's get out of this disgusting place. She didn't want to seem rude though, so she was trying to be as cordial as possible. So she was like, where's Emily? And he was like, oh yeah, she is right downstairs doing some laundry. She'll be up in just a minute, so why don't you just come upstairs and we can pick out a puppy for you? She was like, I'm not going up there. And she backed up a little bit. And he was like, come on, you don't have to be afraid. It's me. I'm Emily's dad. And she was like, oh, that's true. I'm probably just being silly. And she was like, I don't want Emily to think I was scared of her dad, you know. He even went to offer bringing the puppies downstairs so she could look at them. But he was like, I don't want them to be running loose. She studied his face and was like, oh, he seemed very sincere. So she was like, okay, I'll just come up. Halfway up the stairs, she's like, how come I don't hear the puppies? And he was like, oh, they're probably asleep. They're little. And she walked up into a bedroom with white walls and then continued into a connected room that was pink. And he pointed to a dresser and said they're underneath that dresser. And then suddenly she heard the door slam behind her. Michelle started screaming. and was like, let me out of here. Let me out of here. And Ariel was still in the room. And he put his hand over her mouth and nose and pressed his hand on the back of her head and skull. And he was like, I'll kill you if you scream again. She was so taken aback by all this because she was like he seems so nice and this would be why I don't trust anybody <laughs> he then yanked her hands behind her and pushed her to the ground so he shouted in her face as she was laying on the floor and spit she said was flying into her face he grabbed her purse and threw it into a corner he ran into the next room and said I'll be right back she started looking for something she tried to scream, but when she opened her mouth, no sound came out. She was just so terrified. She was essentially paralyzed with fear. She saw two poles in the room with a wire that was strung between them, kind of like a clothesline. But after a second, the guy came right back in, lifting a heavy stool through the door. He set it down next to her, and in his hand, he had two extension cords. He said, lay still. And he tied her up. And she said that while he was tying her up, sweat was dripping down his face and onto her shirt. And she said it smelled like pee and car oil. It was very, like a very strange mixture. He yanked her arms after he tied her feet. And she screamed and tried to punch him in the face. And she just begged him with tears running down her face 
And he just was like, shut up or I'll really kill you. He then wrapped her wrists together and then pulled her hands and feet together and back with the cord. Then he looped the cord around her neck. And she said that he started to unzip her jeans, pulled down her pants, and whipped out his penis. And I'm just going to give a brief warning. There's going to be talk about sexual violence now and a little bit pretty much throughout the rest of this episode. So I just wanted to make sure you guys knew. So after he unzipped his jeans and pulled out his presumably small penis, he started jerking off and he talked throughout the whole time. He was just like, I want us to be friends. My wife and kids left and all I want is for someone to be here for me. I need you. Michelle was terrified. Her hands and feet were numb and her face was wet from all the tears. Snot was running down her nose. She said she's been terrified before, but never like this before. She was sure she was going to die today. She kept her eyes closed throughout most of the time. And when she did open them, Ariel finished on top of her. And then he sat down on the stool and said, now I need you to be still so I can put you up on these poles. And got up, pulled up his pants. And he took off her sandals. She started saying a prayer. Sorry, guys, this one's hard because this one's a... This one has a very in-depth account from her book, which I do recommend everyone check out. But she said a prayer, and he told her to shut up. She just kept saying a prayer, and he smacked her really hard, and she just quieted down. She was like, okay, well. He took off her sandals and put them in the corner with her purse, and then he rolled her over on her stomach, and he tied the cords around the poles and the long wires between the two poles. And she said it felt like she was being hung up like a trophy on the wall. And she was like, he reminded me of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Because he was like, I'm going to go grab some food. And you stay right where you are. Don't leave or make a sound. It was very strange, she thought. And she was like, what am I going to do when my mouth is taped shut? He turned on the radio that was sitting on the dresser, and the volume was so loud she said that it hurt her ears. And then he slammed the door and went downstairs. She said she tried to get out of the wrappings, but she couldn't. She wanted to escape, but she couldn't. She tried to scream, but no one could hear her with the radio going and the tape over her mouth, and she couldn't see because she didn't have her glasses. She felt defeated. She looked around the room... It just seemed like nothing could help her. She said being trapped there was painful. It felt like someone was sticking a thousand pins and needles in her body. Her head was throbbing from the sound of the radio. And by this time the sun went down, Ariel didn't return. And she felt like when he did come back, he was going to kill her. And she said all she could think about was Joey. And if she would ever see him again. That's one of the hardest parts about this is knowing that she was trying so hard to get her son back for so long and it wasn't at her own fault that she lost him in the first place. It was because she trusted her son with family and the family didn't take care of him. But she was on the way to be able to go get him back or at least working towards getting him back and she missed her appointment and just so freaking unfortunate. For Michelle, the thought of Joey is what kept her going. And 
you will hear more about this in the next episode of this case, but she said that Joey was one of the main reasons she was able to stay alive. So morning ended up coming, and then afternoon, and then eventually it was another night that passed. So she was thirsty and hungry, and this was the hungriest she's been in her whole life. She said her mouth felt so unbelievably dry with the sock crammed into it. She ended up peeing herself, unfortunately, because she, you know, was trapped there. She couldn't go pee. She couldn't hear anything with the radio. And eventually he finally barged in the door and was holding some sandwiches in a yellow McDonald's wrapper and was like, you got to eat something and turned down the radio and ripped the duct tape from her head and removed the sock. She said that her hair came out when he ripped out the tape and it, she screamed because it hurt so bad. And then tried to shove it into her face, but she pressed her lips together and shook her head from side to side. And then he grabbed her by the jaw and tried to force her to eat it. He was like, you need to eat. She was worried that he might have put drugs in the food or that maybe he would poison the food. So he eventually threw the sandwich on the floor and was like, okay, undid the restraints that she had on her. And she just fell into the floor and he called her some derogatory names. and. He unwound the wrapping around her neck and the ankle, and a stream of blood ran down her foot. And before she could say anything, he threw her over his shoulder, grunting, and carried her into the small white room next door, and threw her on the queen-size mattress with no sheets. It was stained and gross, she said. And again, more sexual violence. He stripped down all of her clothes, and for an hour straight, she said, he raped her again and again. She said that it hurt so bad that the mattress was soaked with her blood, and she tried to kick him off and scratch his face, but there was no way she could. She was a small girl, and he was a very large man. She kept asking him not to hurt her and that she just wanted to go home. And she was like, I don't think you're a bad person. This is just one mistake. If you let me go, we can forget about this. Sorry, guys, this is a hard one. And when he finished for the last time, he just laid down next to her and started talking to her like she was his girlfriend. He said, I really wish I didn't have to do this to you then why did you? Like, why did you? Like, you have control over your impulses and nothing justifies taking someone's body in that way. Ariel turns out to be just an absolutely shitty man. I mean, obviously he's raping a young girl and keeping her captive. Like, obviously he's a shitty man, but he does even worse later on. Let's just leave it at that. It gets worse and worse. But the worst thing that he does is never, he never takes accountability. And we'll go more into that later on. So she said that he started to cry after he did that to her. And he was like, my wife left me. I didn't mean to beat her, but it's like, I ain't got the power to stop myself. And he was like, I got molested when I was a little kid and no one did anything about it. That's why I started jerking off. And that's why I started watching porn. I just want one person to stay here with me. Then find someone who lo will love you, get help. Like, 
don't kidnap a fucking girl. I'm sorry I keep interjecting with my opinions, but this is just fucked up. She wanted to make a break down the stairs, but she was kind of trapped in the corner of the mattress towards the wall. And she said something like I just said, actually, that just because you had a bad life doesn't mean you get to do this to people. And suddenly he jumped off the bed and pulled out money and was like, and threw it at her and was like, there's payment for your services and then left the room. She got to her feet or tried to get to her feet. And before she could reach the door, he was back and said, where do you think you're going? He was holding her purse. He emptied everything on the floor and was like, how old are you? She didn't answer. What's your birth date? She still didn't answer him. And then he went through her purse and found her wallet, pulled out her ID, and he was like, you're 21? And she was like, yeah. And he was like, I thought you were much younger. I thought you were a prostitute. And he was visibly angry, she said, that she was so old. And he came over and sat on the edge of the mattress and was like, you look, we're just going to be friends, okay? You're just going to be with me here till maybe Christmas. She felt her like whole soul sink, essentially, because she didn't want to stay there for Christmas. Who would? But she started to cry, and it really hit her. She's like, I'm trapped in this house. And he was like, I got to see if I can trust you. And he gave her her shirt and underwear, but not her shorts. He stared at her as she put them on, and she said that they were stained with pee and blood, and her shirt smelled like his gross sweat. After she was dressed, he put his hand on her arm. She put, tried to push him away, but he yanked her by the hair, pulling her up from the bed, and she just screamed, no, please let me go. He ignored her and dragged her over the top of the staircase and dragged her down the stairs to the first floor, then stopped for a minute and then brought her over to another door and undid a padlock, which led to the stairs going down to the basement. He brought her down to the basement, and there was a fat pole. There was barely any light, but there was a big pole, and he turned on the ceiling light bulb and was like, stay right there. She said that there was a bunch of rusted chains everywhere. Piles of dirty clothes were all over. There was a big sink with a puddle of water on the floor underneath and an old washing machine right next to it. There were a couple cabinets, one blue, one white. There's tools and pipes just scattered everywhere. There's boxes stacked up to the ceiling, and a whole lot of videos, like piles and piles of porn. And the place, she said, smelled like mildew, and there was a tiny window, but the, the tiny window was covered with black dirt, so no light really came through. And she looked up and saw on the basement door that she'd just come through that there was a bunch of alarms and there was a bunch of wires sticking out from the alarms that he had presumably rigged up himself. So he picked up two chains, some really rusty chains, and they were about eight feet long. He pulled her arms behind her and stuffed a sock in her mouth and pushed her against the pole and started wrapping the huge chains all the way around her stomach, her neck. And he locked the two chains behind her. He said, now we have to make sure no one can hear you. He walked over and picked up something from a table, which ended up being a motorcycle helmet. 
He put it over her head and everything went black for her. And she said she could barely breathe. And that is where we're going to stop, guys. I know that's a lot and it gets worse. And we will introduce the rest. I think this will just be a two-parter, but it might be a three. I know. I'm sorry. I did end up reading a few books regarding this because I really wanted to give the most information I could. But this first book regarding Michelle Knight is called Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness, A Life Reclaimed. As her memoir that she wrote when she got out. So I highly recommend checking it out. It's available on Kindle. It's available on Audible if you check out our sponsor. But it's pretty quick read and it's very, very telling. It, it's a lot though. I will th- throw that out there. It is a lot. This girl is just an innocent girl. I mean, they all were. So, <sighs> okay. So we'll have a part two and we're going to have a little break in between with something a little more spooky. And then we will have part two next week. And then we will also be doing Krampus next week. And we're going to have a special guest for that episode. A very, very special guest. One of my favorite special guests. But we will find out more about that later on. But stay tuned for part two and our spooky episode that's coming up. That will be a surprise episode. It'll be fun, I promise. So make sure to check out our social media. We are not doing Twitter anymore because Twitter is going to the dogs and I do not support, I don't really care, I'm going to say it, Elon Musk and the stuff he's doing with the staff at Twitter and the way he's changing things. I feel like it would be wrong for me to support utilizing that anymore. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash the podcast and our Instagram is instagram.com slash the podcast. If you want to check out our website, our website is theeeriepodcast.com. And I would love to hear some stories from you guys, whether it's a true crime related story, like something weird that's happened to you, or even like a creepy story, like a cryptid, or if you've ever had like a haunting at your house or anything, anything creepy you want to share. Even if it's not your story to like tell, if you have something that you've heard, I'm very open to any recommendations you might have. So send them my way. So yeah, we will see you again this week. And then we'll see you again next week, twice. So we're going to have two episodes next week and two episodes this week. I'm hoping this won't turn into a three-parter, but that's plausible. I'm saying two for now, but it might turn into a three-parter because this is heavy and I want to make sure to tell the stories the right way. I don't want to just talk about, oh, he did all these things, a list of the things he did. I just feel wrong doing that because unlike most cases, there is like a highly in-depth memoir from all the victims. And I want to make sure to share the information that's available on them, but not too much because I want you guys to also read their books. I really strongly recommend. Anytime I recommend a book, it's because I want to support the victims or I want to make sure that people have all the information they can and can read up the same way I did for the episode, but please check it out. Again, it's called Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness, A Life Reclaimed, and it's by Michelle Knight. So that's it, you guys. That's it for today. I appreciate you all sticking in there. This was a long, long one tomorrow for the creepy episode, which will be a quicker one. (laughs) All right. Keep it eerie, guys. 
Don't be weird. My dogs are just laying there listening to me talk. Good boys. Make sure to go check out this book. So yeah, send me some stories and we will see you tomorrow. All right. Bye, guys.